You're listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. The session is made possible by our friends with the Christian Standard Bible. Learn about this new translation and the many ways you can enjoy the CSB. Explore online when you visit csbible.com. always glad for listeners who join us for this podcast. I'm Wayne Shepard with Michael Card, and this is In the Studio with Michael Card, a weekly visit. Michael, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. You sound a little bit peaked there. Yeah, you got I just a cold? got one of those old-fashioned colds, you know. It's okay. not COVID, don't worry. And we're on okay. Zoom, so you're not, you're not going to catch anything from me, so <laughs> no worries. <laughs> we're going to reach back in the archive today, and this is amazing, Producer Joe was just telling me this was recorded in 1999 yeah. with Bob Bennett. That, that doesn't sound that long ago to me, but that's 20... It, it, it doesn't, it, yeah, until yeah. you start adding them up. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things about getting old. A 1999 car is not old to me, but it's... <laughs> well, I remember the conversation with Bob very well. He joined us at the Molin studio in Franklin, uh, yeah. When you live there, and uh, I remember very well. We're going to replay that conversation and hear some of Bob's music here in just a few moments. But we always like to take a moment and thank our listeners, wherever they are in the world, for listening to this podcast. Ramon yeah. in Brazil says, I'm a huge fan of you from Brazil. I just want to say thank you, all caps, for helping me so much in so many important moments of my life with your blessed songs. Again, all caps, God bless you very much. Now and always. That's from mm. Ramon in Brazil. You've never been to South America, though, have you? I I have never been to South America. Been to Central America, Cancun, and you know down down in there, but never never uh yeah never South America. Yeah, I've but, been to you Central know what, America, but and Ecuador, and that's it. So my new realization, Wayne, is that if if anything we do really helps anybody, mm-hmm. it it really wasn't uh, us that helped them, right? Yep, they, I understand. I, I received that thanks, thank, thanks from uh, Ramon. But uh, you know, the, if if anything we do really help people, it was it was the Lord that helped them. I agree. One other thing Joe did today is he handed me this brand new handcrafted CSB Bible. Do you have one of these? I, I do, and uh, you know, CSB of course it's a clearly a, a superior translation, but uh, they they of course they. <laughs> They uh, they they give so much attention to you know the binding and the 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 leather covers. I mean, they really are beautiful Bibles. All all the editions I've seen are really handcrafted and uh, they're beautiful. And the Bible should be yeah. beautifully done. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a gorgeous Bible. Yeah. Well, Bob Bennett coming up later. Your teaching on the life of Jesus will be featured this week here on the podcast. So we'll go with you, so to speak, to Sandy Cove, the Bible conference there, and learn about Jesus. So that's all coming up here in the studio with Michael Card. But let's uh, let's use the old wave machine, you know how they used to do in movies? Uh-huh. And uh, go back in time now. Let's go back in time to 1999 for our conversation with Bob Bennett. All the way from Southern California to the hills of Tennessee here uh, near Nashville. Bob, great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. We're going to talk about our journey with Christ today and uh, obstacles that we encounter along the way, Michael. Yeah, and again, uh, I don't, I can't think of anyone better that we could discuss this with than Bob because it's been a, 
a theme constantly in his music. You know, just the struggle. I think those of us who love Bob's music have always appreciated the honesty you don't always find That's right. in music. There's a transparency there, Bob. We're not telling you anything you don't know, of course. Well. I mean, yeah, there are times when I sort of feel like the poster boy for, <laughs> you know, the obstacle-filled life. But, uh, but I can, I mean, I, as I try to create music that reflects what I've been going through or whatever, I, I don't mean to uh, sort of improperly divulge things that are going sure. on. It's such a fine line between can I share this and be useful to some yeah. someone versus am I just sort of whining and complaining to, to music. But Right, and I think God has uniquely gifted you in that, in terms of going back and mining your experience and, and seeing it through grace. I don't know anyone else who writes like you, so be well, encourared, Bob. I appreciate that. I, I, the, reason, and I, the reason I kind of do it over the years, I've tried to, well, I started doing it, and then I tried to justify myself by thinking about it. <laughs> um, I thought, you know, the gospel really doesn't make much sense unless you you look at it in a real life context. Yeah. I mean, it, it it it's not just some nice idea that only works when we're in the right building, holding the right book, and saying the right thing. Mm-hmm. But that it's a very much a dirt under their fingernails kind of operation. It's lived out. And and the the good news for me is 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 putting that good news in a context of what life is really like. I mean, I, if it doesn't work where we live then it's not really of much practical use. And mm. it's that much more precious to me because I realize that there are room for rampant underachievers like myself to be in the fold in the household of faith. And mm. and uh, so that's that's where I, uh, I like to cheerlead all, all of us who can relate to that kind yeah. of experience. Well, I'm looking forward for us to talk about these things today and to uh, reinforce uh, our look into the Word with both the, of you guys musically, Michael Card and Bob Bennett here today. Bob, we're going to hear a song of yours first of all, but we need you to explain uh, what, uh, what went into this altar in the field. Well, um, today as we're talking about obstacles along the journey of faith, my uh, one of my biggest obstacles is is sort of a knee jerk cynicism. Um, I try to hide it as best I can, but but I very much will gravitate toward uh, a kind of cynicism. And and the world is such a cruel and and and, and goofy unpredictable place that sometimes our cynicism is rewarded with a lot of nodding heads and a lot of people saying, wow, you know, you sure have that. It takes much more risk and much more, um, uh, I I think, much more character to to have gratitude and to have hope. So Alter in the Field is a song that was sort of a surprise to even me when it came out Hmm. because I... I, uh, I found myself being grateful and and wanting to express that to the Lord. Of course, the Old Testament picture of gathering stones and building an altar as this marker so that when people would come along and see this physical marker, um, it would be not only an act of worship for them to to build it and to see it, but also a point of remembrance so they would remember what God had done and how he had done it. As a matter of fact, Michael, before we ask Bob to sing Altar in the Field, Bob, why don't you read uh, from Joshua where this uh, this account comes to us? Uh, of course, the obstacle here is the River Jordan and getting across that river. Mm-hmm. This comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 4, verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. 
So Joshua called together the twelve men that he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribe of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So that was the altar of remembrance, the the uh, the Ebenezer I think uh, mm-hmm. the Stone, I, stones of remembrance. Yeah, the idea, and and I think Bob, your song incorporates that in 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 a lived out way and in uh, in a powerful way. I build an altar in a field so I can remember. It's a great song.
Bob Bennett here in the studio with us at Mole End, along with Michael Card and Alter in the field. Bob, thank you very, very much. Oh, you're welcome. Hmm. I, I, I love to sing that song, and and I love to to think that people would hear it, and 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 be reminded of the importance of being reminded. I mean, <laughs> the idea that um, I developed this incredible amnesia when it comes to the to the things that the Lord has done. And, and I want to downplay the significance of, of the wounds that come in my life. To me, it, uh, when I'm supposed to praise the Lord, not, not that bad things would be happening, but that he promises that he will redeem them somehow, that he will bring them to my good. Um, I'm, very, I'm still at this, even after many years of calling myself a Christian and following after him, I'm resistant to that idea. I'm struck in the modern age by the whole arc of uh, popularity of the recovery movement. Let's mm-hmm. look at the past. Let's find out who we are and who we've been and how that affects who we are. And, and I think sometimes that we church folks, um, because we want, we want to emphasize we're new creatures in Christ. Old things pass away. All things become new. We're fixed. Yeah, that, that it's all done. Yeah. And I love the way there's a, a guy, a pastor in Long Island one time who said something really significant to me. He said, we are in the process of becoming who we are. Mm-hmm. In other words, we get the full benefits of, of membership in the body of Christ. And in one sense, we're very much done. But in another, another sense, we're never done. Mm-hmm. So the obstacles that we encounter on the journey are part of who we are, of what we become. Absolutely. Well, they're what God uses to, to make that transformation possible, I think. And, I mean, and, and I don't want that to, to sound like a greeting card thing, you no, know, yeah. because well, no. there are people that are suffering real pains. and Yeah, so give and, thanks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, the, yeah exactly. That's, you know, hey, right. just thank the Lord and say, if, you know, read these and go away. You yeah, know, but I, I do think when you're in the midst of a wilderness experience like that, uh, to hear someone from the outside sort of shouting in and saying there is purpose you know, there is a purpose to this. I'm not going to give you an easy answer. I'm not going to give you an answer at all, perhaps, besides telling you this is not meaningless. Because I think uh, in the, the low points that I've had in my life, the, the, the greatest temptation was to see that it, was, it had no meaning. Hmm. You know, I think when suffering, I mean, a woman who's having a child, I mean, th- there's purpose and there's meaning and they can bear that pain. Uh, it's the meaninglessness of it, I think, that, that leads people to despair. It doesn't minimize the pain, but it does help to sure. know that there, this is a part of God's design, to be reminded yeah. uh, gently uh, about that, even as we're going through these yeah. things. And if, if the characters in, the, in the, the Old and New Testament have anything in common, it's their suffering. You know, Jacob wrestling with the angel and even, even limping away from the wrestling match mm-hmm. and Job and Hosea and Gomer and all the other people, that's, that's what God uses. Michael, let, let's talk about Jesus, who is the stumbling stone. The, the, the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes them fall. In fact, Jesus in Matthew describes coming to know him as a breaking experience, that you stumble on the stone and there's two possibilities. The stone either uh, you're broken on the stone, which I think refers to people who come to faith, or the stone falls on you and you're you're, uh, you're crushed. So, you know, the, the Word acknowledges that this process of following Christ is a process of, of breaking, of taking up crosses, uh, of saying no to yourself and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, obstacles aren't the exception. They're, that's the process. And you, know, you talk the process about an obstacle. You're talking about. You talk about an uh, obstacle that is for our good. Uh, that stumbling stone, Christ himself, is, is for our good. Yeah. You know, in, in, in my early... Uh, years of my faith, 
I sort of treated the gospel when I would talk to people about it like, hey, come join Club God, everything's mm-hmm. going to be just fine. When in fact, sometimes after you've sort of floated along in the ether of anything goes, mm-hmm. you come in contact with the gospel, you realize there are some absolutes, there is the person of Christ. Um, that's when things sometimes start to get really tough. It, re- it really does. And well, uh, Bill Lane has a, a plaque. It says, uh, when I stand before the Lord, uh, I won't be known by my accomplishments or by my uh, achievements or by, by my degrees, but by the scars that I have incurred from faithfully following Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a real theme in Bill's life, and I think uh, it, it's just thoroughly biblical. It just makes sense that uh, the scars that we incur that, that are, it's another way of talking about an obstacle, are, are what God uh, uses and 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 Christians should be recognized not so much by their big cars, but <laughs> by what they've been willing to endure, faithfully endure, and and of course a big a big theme for me is the fact that Jesus was recognized by his scars after the resurrection. Uh, I think a lot of people haven't looked at that, uh, but after he's raised from the dead, people don't recognize him. Uh, Mary uh, and John. Uh, 20 thinks he's the gardener she's clueless she doesn't know who he is it's not until he says her name that she recognizes him and in luke 24 the road to emmaus the disciples walk and talk with him for hours and they have no idea who who he is they were kept from recognizing him luke says and they recognize him when he breaks the bread and then in john 21 the second miraculous catch of fish uh, Jesus is standing on the shore. He has prepared breakfast for the disciples. Uh, he shouts out to them, you know, you haven't caught any fish. And they say no. And he tells them, put your nets down over there. And they they pull this net full of fish back up. And John recognizes the miracle because this is the second miraculous catch of fish. John recognizes the miracle, uh, not Jesus' appearance. And even when they pull the boat up on the shore, in John 21, I think it's verse 13, says, And none of the disciples dared ask, Who are you? Hmm. So for some reason he was not immediately recognizable, and that is a mystery. But what isn't a mystery is that when Jesus wants to be recognized, he doesn't point to his appearance. He points to his scars. In, uh, in the very first uh, time he appears in John 19, uh, it says on, on the evening of the first day, of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So Jesus doesn't point to his face and say, Look, it's me. He points to the scars, and he says, Look, it's me. And it had always been that way. Um, when uh, the when Jesus appears in Zechariah, a pre, what we would call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Zechariah asks him, where did you get those wounds? And Jesus responds, this is where I was wounded for my friends. And you can go to the other end of history in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5, when um, John is weeping because no one can open the scroll. And uh, the elder pokes John and says, stop crying. He says, look at the lion. And John looks up expecting to see a lion, but he sees a lamb. And he knows who that lamb is precisely because he's wounded. Mm. See, Jesus is known by his scars. He's recognized by his scars. And the application of that is, of course, we as his followers, we are known by our scars. We are known by the obstacles that we have 
you know, joyfully and faithfully endured for his sake. Very interesting. You know, Mike, as I, as I, I can almost hear the voices of our culture saying, well, there's all this talk about this suffering and sacrifice, and it's all, it's all so negative. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do, I mean, how do we speak to that, do you think, in this, in this modern day? Because then, then people take the jump from that particular objection and think it's a sort of an earn-your-way kind of deal, sure. when in fact it, it's, that's not the case at all. Well, I think the paradox of it is, and you know, Bob, I'm a big, I'm a big paradox person. <laughs> Listen to just about any song Michael has written. Huh? <laughs> well, I think part of the paradox is, is that the, the only way to know that real joy, that real liberation that uh, everyone is so hungry for is precisely by being being obedient and dying to yourself saying no to yourself and uh and it doesn't take an einstein to look at our culture and see that um the value system of our culture is not giving anyone any joy it's robbing you know down to little preschool children it's robbing robbing them of their joy i mean they're preschoolers now that are being medicated for depression Uh, who ever heard of a little kid, you know, of that age being depressed? But it's a reality now in our culture, and it's because nobody, nobody has embraced this idea of you say no to yourself, and then then your given joy is something that comes completely apart and 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 uh, from outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. Michael, I've got to go back and ask you when you saw that plaque on uh, Bill Lane's wall. Mm-hmm. Is that where the song came from, or that's the title what, for the song? Well, when Bill when Will, when Bill uh, shared that with us in a sermon, that's where that song came from. Mm-hmm. Bob, uh, I don't know about you. I'd like to hear "Known by the Scars." We yes. get Michael to do that for us right now. Yeah. All right. Won the victory, but 
they only recognize him by the scars. The marks of death that got you never to erase. The wounds of love's eternal war. When the kingdom comes with its perfect that sons, he will be known by the scars. He will be known by the scars. You know, as, as we've been talking about uh, being known by the scars, the place of suffering in our lives, all of a sudden it, it, it brings back that passage where Jesus talks about um, the, the man who, who goes to build a tower but doesn't count the cost, and ultimately he runs out of money, doesn't have the materials to finish it, and, and, and leaves himself open to ridicule. And, and, I, and as we present the gospel message or, or, or we tune into a radio or TV or whatever and hear uh, – the sort of lowest common denominator message sometimes. Mm-hmm. The costs that, that people are telling you to count are things like, well, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do this. But even after you get rid of those more cosmetic, I think less important things, mm-hmm. then the stuff that you're being asked to count the cost over is are, are incredible things, like um, your dealings with other people and and your your honesty and and your integrity and and the measurement of those things and do you have what it takes to stick with the gospel when those are the things that are at risk mm-hmm. um that's becomes very meaningful to me in in um in the context of what we're talking about yeah. the obstacles yeah i i had never thought of counting the cost and overcoming those obstacles as the same thing well i i always i think it's not only a question of what you're willing to do but what you're willing to to not do and and to me it's always beyond the 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 initial things that we seem to latch on to we seem to make a mountain out of a molehill over things that are fairly inconsequential mm-hmm. what we're really talking about are circumstances things that are placed in our path the journey so mm-hmm. to speak here things that are placed there for our good even though we don't recognize them as being for our good and and what we do with those obstacles, that it really is what builds our relationship with Christ, our character in Christ. Yes, and and, and, and you're right. How do we uh, deal with those? What what is our the attitude of our hearts as we overcome these obstacles by grace with Christ? Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to close by uh, reading a short passage in First Thessalonians where Paul says, it's in five sixteen. Paul says, "Be joyful always. Pray continually." Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Doesn't so, leave us an out there, does he? That's <laughs> exactly what I was just thinking. There, there's, there's not a choice. Uh, are we going to be men and women of faith and uh, deal with the obstacles, you know, in partnership with Christ by grace, or not? And there's no way around. These aren't things you walk around. Hmm. You know, it's a shame he couldn't have given us, a, you know, a little bit more difficult mandate to yeah. follow. <laughs> <laughs> At least more complicated. Sure. <laughs> That's a the little, cynical A little Bob bit more Bennett. encompassing. <laughs> As we talk about these obstacles, Michael, our theme is joy in the journey. And, uh, boy, there's a verse of that song that I think would be the best possible conclusion today. Yeah, I think you, you mean the second verse. Yes. Let, let's listen to that one now. As Michael Card moves to the piano with joy in the journey. To all who've been born of the Spirit And who share incarnation with Him Who 
belong to eternity Stranded in time And weary of struggling with sin Forget not the hope that's before you And never stop counting the cost Remember the hopelessness song to cap off this half of our session. This edition is part of an extensive collection of classic and current editions for you to explore on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We hope you share the link with your friends on social media so they can experience what you found. And if what you're hearing in today's session has prompted you to want to learn more, look online for resources from Michael that can help. Michael's latest book, titled The Nazarene, and other books, music and news about upcoming concerts and conferences, all at michaelcard.com. We're always glad to hear from our listeners. Post a comment on the Michael Card Music Facebook page, or send your comments, questions, and song requests via email to inthestudio at michaelcard.com. Coming up, more music and conversation and Michael's closing perspective waiting for you after this message in the studio with Michael Card. Here's Michael on the Holman Handcrafted Bible Collection. I'm happy we're partnering with CSB to get the word out about this current translation. And now we're excited about a special handcraft edition from Holman that utilizes 200 years of Bible publishing craftsmanship. See for yourself how this special collection binds together a current translation and helpful study tools in a beautiful cover that will last a lifetime. Search for Holman Handcrafted Bible Collection and when you order and apply your 30% discount on the CSB purchase through Lifeway, type in the studio as one word in the promotion code for your 30% discount with Lifeway. So make an investment in Bible reading and study for yourself or as a legacy gift for someone special. The Holman Handcrafted Bible Collection. Years of experience crafting high-quality natural leather covers built to endure years of faithful reading. Search for Holman Handcrafted Bible Collection now at csbible.com. Mike, as you sing and speak around the country, whenever possible, I know you like to drive, and recently you drove to the East Coast to to be at Sandy Cove. That's right, 11 hours, Wayne. 11 (laughs) hours. Yeah, but those times in the car can be good too, can't they? They really can, and and I'll tell you this, I I didn't put music or a book or anything on for the whole trip both ways. I was just sort of quiet. Okay. And yeah, uh, yeah, it was a good good time. I've done it both ways too. So you were speaking on the life of Jesus at Sandy Cove. We're going to hear part of that here in just a few moments. You want to introduce it in any way? Yeah, well... It, this is what I've been working on for the last few years, and I'm 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 trying to get a book started on the details of his life and what they mean. Everything that we can know about Jesus, I wanna I wanna know. So that's what it's about. 
All right. Well, this will be a, yeah. a good uh, good sampling of that study of the yeah. life of Jesus. We open with uh, your song, Jesus, Let Us Come to Know You, and then we'll hear the teaching here from Sandy Cove. Jesus, think about this. We know Jesus in a way and to a depth that we know no other person. Think about that. This is the very last thing he said before he was arrested. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they be in us. If you believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, the Holy Spirit is like the breath of Jesus, okay? You know him in a way that you know no other person because his spirit is in you. Uh, I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you love me before the world's foundation. Wow. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I've known you. And they have known the one you sent, uh, that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. That's the last thing he says before he's arrested. That was John 17, uh, 20 through 26. 
The last thing he says, so we know Jesus in a way that we know no uh, other person. Why don't we know him better? Let me give you some reasons why I think we know him better. First of all, there's a huge distance in space. I googled it. Jesus' house is 6,579 miles from my house. That's a long way. Distance in time. 2,000 years. We have this familiarity with Jesus in this world because we know the Gospels, but we take for granted 2,000 years, y'all. That's a long time. I live in Franklin, Tennessee. There was a battle of the Civil War there, and people still can hardly figure out sort of what was going on and what people were doing and that sort of stuff, and that certainly wasn't 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years is an unimaginably long time. There's a cultural distance Jesus, and we're going to look at this in a minute, Jesus lives in a fragmented world with this odd admixture of cultures. And sometimes it's hard for us to get our minds around these things, okay? So distance in space, distance in time, a cultural distance. Uh, the number four, we, we, we possess just that 0 0.9, uh, I mean 0 0.09. Uh, so we have such a small piece of his life Five, we allow other people to know him for us. And this really bugs me. We think that there are, there are experts who, you know, they know him really well. And then they, you know, that's not how it works, y'all. You and I know him in a way we know no other person. Certainly it's good for us to study what the scholars say. But sometimes they do as much damage as they do um, good. Trust me, this is a guy that's been reading articles on the life of Jesus for the last three years. Oh my goodness, some of those guys, I wish they would just, yeah. Uh, six, I read the Gospels with an over-familiarity. I always think I know what Jesus is going to say next. Okay? I listen to Jesus the way I listen to my wife. Because I know what she's going to say. Right? And that is not how we listen to people. Of course, and most of the time I'm right. Right? Most of the time I'm right. We're going to see in a minute a little scene from the life, uh, the, this one precious window we have of Jesus and, and Mary's uh, relationship from the, from the Cana incident. We're going to look at that. Um, and they sort of can finish each other's sentences for each other. It's, it's interesting. We'll look at that. But I listen to Jesus in a, with an over-familiarity. And that's why new translations help. That's why new translations help. I know we, from the Jesus movement days, we love to argue about which translation was best and how many people have lost friends. And all. I mean, come on, y'all. They're, they're all good and they're all bad, right? Every one of those translations has, is based on presuppositions. It's going to be the most literal. It's going to be the most readable. It's going to be whatever. And translators make decisions based on those presuppositions and, and their strengths and their weaknesses to every translation, okay? So don't waste your sorrows on arguing about that kind of stuff. CSB is, though, clearly the best because <laughs> I worked on this one, so. So that was number six. Two more uh, reasons why I don't know Jesus better. Number seven, frankly, I don't like a lot of his friends. Enough said. Eight, and here's the big one. I don't know Jesus better because, frankly, sometimes he frightens me. I'm talking about his absolute lordship. 
When Jesus says he's Lord, that means Lord. Here's a detail. How is it that Jesus walks up to people and says, follow me, and they drop what's ever in their hands and they walk away from their lives? How is that? How is that? It's because of his absolute lordship, and that's frightening. Lord means Lord. And sometimes I don't think I know him like I should because the, that scares me. Okay, let's talk about his world. And there's one word that I, I want to I underline uh, for his world, and that is fragmented. Jesus lives in a fragmented world. This, by the way, is a picture. Uh, it's not a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of, uh, it's, it's a mummy portrait from Fayum, Egypt. Uh, and back in the day, he's a Semitic soldier who was in Egypt. Uh, back in the day, they would paint your portrait and you'd hang it on the wall while you were alive. And then when you died, they put it on your mummy. And look it up, uh, F-A-Y-O-U-M, Fayum, Egypt. There are hundreds of these things. And it's our chance to see first century faces. So this is a first century Semitic face. He is a man of color. He is a man with that three inch, see the three inch uh, hair, three inches. But uh, he would have been this tall, five foot six. Is Jesus short? No, everybody's short. Everybody's short, okay? But that, that from, to me is one of the most uh, uh, relatable images. But that's not Jesus. That's a Semitic man from the first century. That's his, his portrait. Okay, let's talk about his fragmented world, though. First of all, we know that his world is dangerous from before he's born, right? Jesus is not safe. Part of the fragmentation of his world. Uh, right around, a little bit before probably he was born, just a couple of miles, he lives in Nazareth, right? This little hole in the wall that's about as big as a soccer field, um, just a few miles from Nazareth is Sepphoris, this big city, big glorious city, right? Uh, the Romans come in, uh, 4 BC, they come and take that city and 2,000 people are crucified in a single day. The Romans crucify 2,000 people on one day. There wasn't any wood left for crosses. My point, what does that mean? That's a detail. What does that mean? That means that Jesus grows up in a very dangerous world, two, three miles from his house. And 30,000 more residents are led off into slavery. I mean, what's it like growing up where, you know, he can see Sepphoris from Nazareth? What's that like? It has an impact. Jesus lives in a dangerous world. Uh, before he's even born... Herod tries to kill him. Uh, we refer to it as the slaughter of the innocents, Matthew 2, 13 through 38. When they come back from Egypt, Matthew 2, 19 through 23, Joseph decides to move to Nazareth because it's not safe to stay in Bethlehem because Archelaus is there. So even as he's a little baby, before he's a baby, they're trying to kill him. And then when he comes back, he has to move someplace else so he'll be safer there because it's not safe for him there. You, are you getting my point? He lives in a dangerous world. He lives in a dangerous world. Um, the, uh, Mark 3. Mark 3. 3. The Pharisees decide they're going to kill him. Mark 3. That early in the gospel. 
They've already decided, and, I, and I've got a list of all the plots. I've done that homework for you. You're welcome. Uh, Mark 3, 1 through 6. The Pharisees and the Herodian begin to plot uh, to kill Jesus. Why? Because he healed someone on the Sabbath. Okay, we'll look at that later. In John 7, there's that wonderful engagement Jesus has with his brothers, right? And he's going to go to uh, Jerusalem. And uh, he doesn't, at first, he doesn't go. Because the, the Jews there are waiting to take his life. That's uh, John 7, 32, uh, 45 through 52. And that's where his brothers sort of mock him. Anyone who wants to become a public figure doesn't act in secret. Right? So we go to Jerusalem and let your disciples see what you're doing. Now, we wouldn't know that was mocking, but John, in a little parenthesis, John is the only gospel that whispers... 57 asides in John, and John whispers, for even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Even his own brothers didn't believe in him. But he, he waits to go to Judea because the Jews there are, are, are waiting to take his life. Matthew, uh, Mark 11, the chief priests and scribes begin looking for a way to kill him. Also in 12, 12, and in Mark 14, the chief priests and scribes look for a sly way to arrest and kill him. So his world is fragmented, and it's a dangerous world. Um, Judaism is fragmented, and you already know this. You already know this. I mean, think, what, what do we have in the gospel? We've got Pharisees. There are seven different groups of Pharisees. They don't agree on anything except maybe the Sabbath and the oral law. We've got Pharisees. We've got uh, Sadducees. We've got priests. We've got scribes who are legal experts. We have zealots, uh, the beginning of a zealot movement. Did you know the zealot movement, the revolutionary zealot movement, began about the same year Jesus was born in Galilee? Judas the Galilean is the guy who started the zealot movement. And I just read a series of articles, and I don't have a conclusion for you, but let me just say it this way. Scholars are now debating the fact whether the term Galilean means revolutionary as much as it indicates the fact that you're from Galilee, geographically, there's a lot of scholars who are saying, now that, that really means revolutionary, because all the revolutions start in Galilee. And we'll talk more about Galilee in, in a second. So his religious world is, is divided up. Now here's a big one. This is so big, I'm going to come down here. This is really big. Okay, in Jesus' world, we do not have Judaism. We have Judaisms. Now, this is from Ju Jewish scholarship. This isn't Christian scholars, look, you know, sort of dismantling. This is, this is rabbinic scholarship. And this is what we have uh, in, in Jesus' time. We have Israelite religion, and we have the beginning of rabbinic Judaism. And, you, and the thing is, here's cool. You already know this. And when I say this, you're going to go, of course, Right? Israelite religion, what is that? Temple, priests, sacrifices. That's Israelite religion, right? From the Hebrew Bible. Rabbinic Judaism, what is that? Rabbis. Rabbi, that's not in the Hebrew Bible. Synagogue, synagogue, that's not in the Hebrew Bible. See, it's a, it's a new um, reaction to, uh, I don't know what it's reaction to, but we have Israelite religion and we have rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism, Pharisees, right? 
oral law, which Jesus hates, he breaks it every chance, he, every time he has a chance. Oral law. When Jesus spits on the Sabbath to make mud to heal the guy's eye, ask you a question, does Jesus have to put mud on someone to heal them? He doesn't even have to be there to heal people. So when he spits and makes mud and puts it on somebody's face, you got to go, that detail means something. Okay, what does the oral law say? You can't spit on the Sabbath because the spit might run downhill. And if it runs downhill, it might make mud. And making mud is work. And you'll notice when the Pharisees investi investigate the healing, they're, they're constantly saying, who made the mud? Who made the mud? They can't see that a man has been healed. And by the way, that was one of the uh, four messianic miracles. There are four miracles that only the Messiah can do. And one of them is healing someone with a birth defect. He was born that way. Only the Messiah can heal that. And that's what the Jews taught. The Pharisees knew this. And so Jesus heals a man born blind. And all I can do is talk about mud. So we got, we've got Israelite religion and we've got rabbinic Judaism. And that is happening during the life of of Jesus. That transition is happening during the life of Jesus. Now it ends 70 AD, the Romans destroy the temple, no more priests, no more temple, no more sacrifices, and all we have left are the Pharisees and the rabbis, and they go to the Romans and say, we are no threat to you. And now we have what we have today, which is rabbinic Judaism. See, we don't offer sacrifices. What do we do? We study Torah. We do works of hesed. We do works of kindness, right? Those are our sacrifices now because we don't have a temple anymore. So, but the, the point is, this is part of Jesus' world, and you feel it in the Gospels, don't you? There's no one agrees on anything, right? The only reason the Pharisees and the priests come together, because normally, trust me, they hate each other. The only reason they come together is that they hate Jesus more than they hate each other. Okay, here's another, and, and this is one of your questions. Here's another thing that you know that I find really interesting, a detail from the life of Jesus, and we've got to stop and learn to ask what it means. And that is how often Jesus hides. Mark 1.45, because of the crowd, he could not enter a town openly. He goes to the Eremos Tapas, which is wilderness places. We don't really know how to translate it. That's Mark's favorite, one of his favorite terms. Eremos Tapas, the wilderness deserted places, lonely places. It's translated a lot of different ways. But Jesus cannot, that's Mark 1. That's chapter 1, guys. From chapter 1, he's going out to the wilderness because it's not safe where he is. Uh, Luke 5, 6, and 9, 18, he withdraws to deserted places to pray. Mark 7, 24, he enters a house in Tyre, but wanted his, to keep his presence there a secret. See, don't let anybody know I, I, I'm there. I'm, I don't talk about this here, but we have what we call the Messianic secret where Jesus heals people and says, please don't tell anybody I did that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And scholars falsely call that the Messianic secret, that Jesus is trying to keep his Messiahship a secret. Is he trying to keep his Messiahship a secret? No. 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 But he's, he doesn't want it to be broadcast that he's the Messiah until people understand what that means. Right? And when he tells people not to tell, they, they never obey anyway, right? How can you not tell? And what happens? He's covered up with people who just want to see miracles, and he has to flee to the wilderness. 
That's part of his life. See, we need to get this in our heads. Okay. John 7, he goes to Galilee to escape the Judeans who want to kill him. Quick sidebar. There's another a debate that's going on in scholarship now, and they're, they're saying that the, the Greek word eudaioi, which we translate Jew, they're beginning to say, no, that should be translated Judean. That should be translated Judean. That is not just a, a Jew in general, but a person who's from the area, the province of Judea, the southern province where Jerusalem is. You've got Galileans up here, we've got Judeans, we've got Samaritans in the middle, right? So, uh, because the problem is not Jesus and the Jews. A lot of anti-Semitism has come because of this. The problem isn't Jesus and the Jews. The problem is Jesus and the Judeans, who happen to be Jews. But the people in the South, they're the ones who are sending investigative committees from Jerusalem to investigate what in the world is he doing, right? He's baptizing people. He's talking about the kingdom. He's from Galilee. That's not good. In uh, John 8, the crowd picks up stones to stone him, and he was hidden from them, whatever that means. John 10, the crowd tries to seize him, but he escapes. John 11, he no longer walks openly, but he departed to a town close by in the wilderness called Ephraim. And finally, in John 12, Jesus said, walk while you have the light. Then he went away and hid himself. Michael Card teaching at Sandy Cove Bible Conference in the life of Jesus. So is that a supernatural thing that Jesus slips away like that, Mike? I think it's a mixture of things. I mean, at one point uh, it says, you know, they were kept from seeing him. So that seems to be a supernatural thing. Um, sometimes I think he just has to get away from the crowd. He goes to the wilderness a lot. He'll go to someplace like Tyre. And we're told there that he was trying to keep his presence there a secret. Uh, after the, the kind of initial, more um, obscure phase of his ministry, when people started getting healed and things like that, and before he started about talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, there was a big drop-off in followers after that. Um, but during that early part of the ministry, they are covered up with people. He, he's just mm. covered up with people. Well, what's the takeaway for us? Well, I think it's to realize in, in, in the course of his life uh, what he had to deal with. I mean, to be uh, obedient to his father and um, what he'd been told to do, to speak his father's word, to tell about the kingdom, and uh, to prepare uh, to sacrifice himself. Uh, he, he is constantly being drained. You know, at one point, a woman touches him and he says, I, f- I felt the power go out of me. I think that must have been almost a constant thing for Jesus. He's just exhausted. And I, I think it helps us get in touch with uh, who he really is and what he endured for our sake. It's our prayer that the music and conversation you just heard has helped you develop a better understanding of the Bible and living the Christian life. Learn about Michael's books, his music, live events, and our podcast guest details at michaelcard.com. We're glad for the partnership with our sponsors at the Christian Standard Bible. Visit csbible.com to learn more about this current translation. This month, we're featuring the Holman Handcrafted Bible Collection. See for yourself how Holman's years of experience crafting high-quality Bibles can provide you with a CSB edition that will last a lifetime. Make an investment in Bible reading and study for yourself, or perhaps as a legacy gift for someone special. Search for the Holman Handcrafted Bible Collection 
And when you order, use the promotion code in the studio, type with no spaces, to receive your 30% discount on CSB purchases through Lifeway. The Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com. Now for all of us on the team, Ron Davis, Susan Sermon, Lance Mansfield, and our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for joining us for this session in the studio with Michael Carr.